This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hear more from Free FM. For a small monthly fee, you can become a patron and support independent community media. Go to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out how. Tasha Dele and wel- welcome to the program. Today we're going to talk about what is probably for most of us the greatest obstacle to practicing the Buddha's teachings, what the Tibetans call the laziness of attraction to meaningless activities. And this is one of my f- personal favorites. For instance, I can find lots of excuses to troll the internet for news or interesting sites, checking out funny videos on YouTube and so on, while at the back of my mind a little voice is saying, I could be much better employed. The internet is only one source of distraction though, there are plenty of others, and we have no shortage at all of things to do to avoid actually getting serious about the Dharma. The more entertainment we can find, the more there is to distract us. I guess that's why it's so good for monks to stay in the forest, where the closest you can get to distraction is your own mind. But perhaps I'm getting a bit in front of myself. If you were with us last week, you will know that we are discussing the perfections a Bodhisattva concentrates on when following the path to enlightenment. We've talked about generosity and morality, and we went into some detail on patience. Now we're going to talk about enthusiasm, otherwise commonly described as joyous effort. Now last week we talked about one of the obstacles to joyous effort, the laziness of procrastination. In other words, putting off Dharma practice because we think we have to do other things first. For example, making money, or putting the kids through school, or creating a business. We say, I'll just do this first, or finish that first, then I'll get to the Dharma practice. This of course means we will never get to Dharma practice because worldly activities never come to an end. As soon as we complete one, another arises. We said last week that a good way to counter this kind of thinking is to remember death and impermanence. Our life quite literally hangs on a breath. So if we want to do anything meaningful with our lives, now is the time to do it. We might just not have a tomorrow. Not so long ago, the worst floods in Pakistan's history left hundreds of people dead and many others in dire straits. How many of them, do you think, gave some forethought to what could happen and were prepared for their imminent death or life's disaster? Very few, I should imagine. We might think that it couldn't happen to us, but we have no guarantee that we are not next on the list. Just because we live in a relatively uneventful country doesn't mean a major disaster is not around the corner for us. So if death is this close, what are we doing to practice and at least build up some store of positive potential to help us through if we do encounter something like those floods, or in our case, an earthquake? And so we dealt with the laziness of procrastination. Now, before we go on to look at the laziness of attachment to to meaningless activities, let's just set our motivation for participating in today's program, like we usually do. Please set a bodhicitta motivation if you can. That is to gain enlightenment, not only for your own benefit, but to help all beings everywhere become free of suffering. If that is too much for you, then at least motivate to gain your own liberation from suffering. Thank you. 
Now, as I said, we're surrounded by distractions that basically entice us away from what the Buddha taught us to do. Even what we might think of as innocent activities, like watching sport, can be this kind of laziness. Zonsa Kensei Rinpoche, the Buddhist master who made the film called The Cup, which you may have seen, has taken his students to a major football game and purposely led them to where the fans of the two sides playing were confronting each other before the game. Yelling and shaking their fists at each other, they were causing quite an emo- a commotion. And you just know that it takes very little for that kind of ruckus to turn quite nasty. Rinpoche wanted his students to come face to face to with what happens when we allow our minds to wander away from the Dharma and latch onto meaningless activities. Of course, the football fans would not think their attachment to their side and the hullabaloo they cause at a game is meaningless. Soccer might be their driving force in life. But in terms of where you land up with a mind completely in turmoil about something like a bunch of men chasing a piece of leather, it is seriously meaningless. It only takes you further and further into samsara and suffering and further away from enlightenment. If instead of getting aggressive and intolerant about what is in the end merely a trivial pastime, we apply ourselves to settling the mind with study, contemplation and meditation, developing qualities like tolerance towards others and compassion, how much further on our evolutionary path will we be able to go? You might counter by saying that unless you're a monk living in the forest, everybody has to engage in worldly activities and that involves accepting invitations to go to soccer matches, movies, parties and so on. Now that is true, but the difference is how we engage in these activities. Let's take two flatmates. One is a strong Dharma practitioner, the other is not. The one who doesn't practice the Buddha's teachings likes just blobbing out watching TV, but the Dharma practitioner only watches the box to broaden his knowledge to be able to use his Dharma practice to more effectively help others, or to take a short rest from his practice to refresh his mind. The way the two watch TV makes the difference. The one who just watches TV for amusement's sake is just attached to a meaningless activity, while the Dharma practitioner is using the TV to enhance his Dharma practice. This indicates that although we may have to be constantly engaged in worldly activities, we can transform them into practice by our motivation or attitude. For instance, working in an office, I can just do the work for the money and the career, or I can do it with the motivation to increase my generosity, kindness and tolerance of others. The first motivation is just for my own short-term benefit, so in Dharma terms, It is concerned with meaningless activities. It does little to advance me on the path to enlightenment, and if I use my position to become more competitive, more demanding, more arrogant, and generally more unpleasant to be around, I will be creating the causes for more samsaric journeys for myself. In other words, I will be going away from enlightenment, not towards it. With a second motivation, I would be using my work to actually progress on the path to enlightenment. By strengthening my positive qualities, work enhances my Dharma practice rather than becoming an obstacle to it. Then work is not a form of laziness at all. The laziness of being attached to meaningless activities is doing anything motivated by what the Buddhists would term non-virtue. 
This increases our attachment, aversion or ignorance, and in the end does not lead to the end of suffering. In fact, it just leads to more dissatisfaction and unhappiness. I don't know about you, but I find that this, this type of laziness quite difficult to counteract. It's easy when sitting down at a computer to work out a radio program like this for the mind to be pulled to the internet and all the interesting sites you can find on it. I guess it would not be difficult to spend hours trolling through YouTube, for instance, finding all the weird and wonderful videos people have made or downloaded. Half the trouble with this kind of activity is that you may start only intending to spend five minutes on it, but when you next look at the clock, you realize you've been engrossed for a couple of hours. I have no interest in computer games, thank goodness, but I can see how young people can completely become entranced by them. The way to overcome our attachment to meaningless activities is to remember the results of negative karma and to concentrate on developing positive attitudes or qualities like love and compassion and so on. We can perhaps remind ourselves of the various sufferings that we go through because of our attachments and aversions. Do you remember the sufferings we described in an earlier program in this series? Of course, there are the three sufferings, the suffering of suffering, the suffering of change, and the all-pervasive suffering. And if sitting with our noses stuck in front of a screen does not bring the suffering of suffering on our back through too much slouching, it certainly has the potential to keep us unsatisfied with the suffering of change. For instance, no sooner has a computer gamer finished one level of a game, but he or she has to proceed to the next. Then, when that game is finally conquered, the mind is off searching for the next one. And so it goes. And the gamer is never satisfied. Where do you think that will lead in the future? It certainly is not creating the imprints for long-term happiness now, is it? We can also remember the many other sufferings that samsara is prone to. Firstly, our type of existence is completely uncertain. Even though we may find all our enjoyment in some form of meaningless activity today, like indulgence in a sport, a computer, TV or whatever, we can't be sure either that it will give us the satisfaction that we expect or that tomorrow we will still have access to it. For a bit of an extreme example, take Roger Federer, for instance. He's been top of the tennis ladder for years, winning tournament after tournament. He came to a point where he almost expected that when he entered a top tournament like a Grand Slam, he would win it. Of course, he was beaten a few times, but it all came to a head in the, at the Australian Open in 2009 when Rafael Nadal beat him in the final and Federer broke down in tears. When we put all our trust in activities like that, sooner or later we will be prone to disappointment, and sometimes that disappointment is so great it causes us immense pain. Of course, there is the adrenaline rush and the adulation when you win, but that adulation is so short-lived. A whole stadium erupted when Rafael Nadal won the 2009 Australian Open, but who remembers it now? And who will remember it in, say, two, 20 years' time when Nadal is retired from the sport? Some people might remember that particular Australian Open, but mainly for the fact that Roger Federer broke down and cried, not that Nadal won it. And anyway, as we have seen again and again, all the adulation breeds 
is desire for more and more. If we're not careful, it never stops, and when, as it must, it eventually dies away completely, we can suffer terribly if we become addicted to it. I can't really say what such a dependency would lead to in future lives, but judging by what it does to us in this life, it won't be bringing happiness. I picked this example of Nadal and Federer because it's famous and a little extreme, but we can look into our own lives for examples that may, may, may be more pertinent to us. If we look at our own addictive behavior, it becomes obvious how restless it makes our minds. We think we are getting happiness, but it's not real. Because it's so uncertain, it makes our mind so turbulent and is so co strongly compelling. We can definitely say that in future lives, such activities won't lead us out of samsara. If we, say, say, become addicted to something like computers in this life, it will only result in more addictive behavior in coming lives. As soon as we are born in a coming life and see a computer, we'll be very drawn right back into it. A couple of programs ago, I talked about a young boy who from a very early age was fascinated by fighter planes and seemed to know all about them, even though he'd not had any schooling in them at all. Then he told his parents he'd been a fighter pilot in his previous life and was shot down into the sea by the Japanese in World War II. This is a compelling example of how the imprints we create in one life continue into another. This boy's early drawings were of planes being shot down, of bombings and violence. When he was about 11, he managed to visit the place where he was shot down and lay to rest the memories of his previous incarnation. His drawings after that became peaceful, with ships sailing in a calm sea, dolphins swimming around and so on. Now imagine if he'd not been able to put those initial violent memories to rest, if he lived his life with those memories sinking into his subconscious and haunting his life. Sooner or later, they would find a situation to resurface, and it may not have been as calming a situation as the one he did experience in this life. So, similarly, our addiction to meaningless activities in this life will have repercussions in coming lives. And how can we know what situation that addiction will arise in? If we are lucky, they will f we will find the compassion that the boy's parents showed him in allowing him to work through the trauma of his being shot down in his previous life. But the greater likelihood is that our situation will not end up as happily. With karma at play, it could have happened that the boy was born into a family that lived in a violent slum, and then the violence of his previous activity might have found another kind of expression altogether. And as we know, violence breeds violence, so he could have been on a one-way track from life to life. Not very nice. And this tells us a lot about where our addictive behavior could well lead us. We can at least tell that it will lead us from life to life. In the same way as the boy was compelled into a family that would in some way resolve his traumatic experience, we will be compelled into another life by our addiction. And so we will have to continue being born again and again, our addictive behavior driving us on and on. Imagine looking into your future and seeing one life after another, after another, after another, and so on. We can't even remember our birth process, it was so unpleasant, but we'll have to go through it endlessly as long as we follow our addictions. 
and similarly we will have to die again and again. The boy who used to be a fighter pilot in his last life died in an exploding aircraft. This life, having taken birth, he must die yet again, though hopefully it may not be as violently as in his last life. And whatever addiction he takes with him will inform his next birth, which will lead to his next death, and on and on he will go. Nobody really regards death as a very pleasant experience either. I mean, talk to most Westerners, and they don't even want to think about death. Don't be so morbid, they will tell you, if you even so much as mention the word. Funny, because we are completely addicted to death in our own way. Just think of our entertainment. It's filled with mostly violence and explosive deaths. Definitely not what we want for ourselves. And yet we're drawn to ugly deaths like moths to the proverbial flame. Perhaps we are attracted because they represent to us such foreign turbulent territory as Hamlet describes when he talks about the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns. Death is that country that both puzzles our will and, like all strange places, attracts us at the same time. But although we may not remember, and though we may have some kind of perverse attraction to it, we have traversed death countless times in the past. Driven by the imprints of our addictive behaviours to essentially meaningless activities, we've been born so many times and died so many times that it is impossible to count them. Remember the Buddha said that when he looked back at his previous lives to find the first one, he couldn't find it. So, similarly, if we could look back at all our lives, we would not be able to see the original one. And that means we have had de infinite deaths and visited Shakespeare's undiscovered country the same number of times. And though we might be the Prince of Denmark or the greatest tennis player of all time in this life, we have no guarantee that in our next life we will not be the lowest dung beetle in the African felt. Once again, that comes down to the results of our addiction to meaningless behavior. It is said that sexual misconduct leads to a life in a dirty environment. So perhaps if we have a strong propensity for giving in to our lust, even though we may be tiger woods in this life, in our next we could find ourselves scrabbling through hyena dung to make a home for our babies. In worldly terms, people may have a sneaking admiration for someone who cheats on their partner and has lots of sexual, sexual partners. But karmically, it's not a good thing to do and it certainly doesn't lead to freedom from cyclic existence. Finally, whatever we are addicted to, whether it be with one or a thousand other people, we will have to experience the results of it by ourselves. We can't rely on anybody to be there to relieve the pain either in this life or the coming lives. Say you are a popular sports personality in this life. You move in the best sports circles and are friends with all the top people. You may love being in the center of attention and influential wherever you go. That will breed a certain craving in your mind that could still be with you in another life when the circumstances are such that you are generally despised. Like some of the world's greatest painters, for instance. Van Gogh wanted to communicate his emotional vision and yet he only managed to sell one painting in his life. His paintings only became famous after his death. That yearning to be appreciated, to be well known, may have been planted in another life 
when he had the experience of fame and adulation. But in this life, the situation was quite different, and so it was impossible. He couldn't take the fame with him, but he was saddled with a craving. And so it is with many of us. So when we think of our addiction to meaningless activities, we can contemplate all these disadvantages and encourage ourselves to not only be involved in Dharma activities that lead us out of the endless round of dissatisfaction and misery and not further into it. We can, of course, also think about the realms we could be born into due to the negative karma we create through addiction to meaningless activities. We could find ourselves in the hell realm, the preta or animal realms, like the dung beetle, and that could mean it would be a very long time before we got this sort of life again. Just one relatively minor non-virtuous act could send us to such existences. So it's better for us to avoid these addictive behaviors as much as possible and engage as much as we can in Dharma practice. Now let's do a few minutes meditation on this subject. Sit comfortably and concentrate on your breath, letting the thoughts come and go without becoming involved with them. Look at your behavior and identify anything you like doing or are involved in that is not motivated by positive intention, like developing tolerance, love, compassion, wisdom and so on. Maybe it's just motivated by attachment, the thought that it will bring you contentment in this life. Has this activity brought you long-term happiness? Has it completely satisfied you so that you will never experience dissatisfaction in regard to it ever again? And can you say that it is certain to bring you happiness without any frustration whenever you indulge in it? Consider also not being able to do it ever again. 
How would that affect you? Consider the effect of the addiction to this activity your longing to do it again and again has on your mind. This, will, this imprint will push you into an experience in a coming life. In that life, you will develop more addictive behavior, thus ensuring that you will take birth again and again and experience death again and again. Think what it must be like to continually to take birth and death again and again through your addictive behavior. Remember that although you may be in a good situation in this life, this addictive behavior could lead to a much worse situation. We have no guarantees with our karma. But whatever situation you end up in, you experience the karma alone. Nobody can take that experience from you. Whatever your addictive behavior, the result is solely your own. Now come out of meditation. 
We've come to the end of the program. Please dedicate any positive energy we've developed to attaining enlightenment for all beings. Thank you for joining us today and have a good week. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.